carbon is not going to be the only ever driving source of revenue for those projects because back to making sure that it's permanent and durable, carbon is really a push to make sure that all of those very good practices, sometimes difficult to implement, are having a right driving or motivating force. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Manuel Pinuela, co-founder and CEO at Cultivo. Cultivo exists to accelerate finance to regenerate nature. They do this by building portfolios of high-quality natural capital that generate healthy financial returns that are good for nature and society. Manuel has been named an Inventor of the Year and 35 Innovators Under 35 by MIT Technology Review for Latin America. Born in Mexico, he earned his PhD from the Imperial College of London in Electrical Engineering. In this episode, we talked about this statistic. More than half of the world's total gross domestic product, or $44 trillion, involves activities that are moderately or highly dependent on nature how they're building a search engine for natural capital, the role of proprietary algorithms versus boots on the ground in their assessments, how projects earn multiple revenue streams while focusing on improving degraded land around the world, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoyed, and please give Manuel and Cultivo a shout-out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Manuel Pinuela, co-founder and CEO of Cultivo. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here, Chris. So the audience surely will not be able to tell, but we are recording this on December 13th, and that puts you 30 hours from being at COP in Dubai, and maybe your body's a little unclear what time zone you're on, but I'm sure they won't notice at all. But speaking, speaking of where you were, a place where, where I was not, so let's, let's channel your boots on the ground there, Manuel. What were some, I don't know, takeaways, good questions, bad questions? Uh, what, what are you kind of leaving uh, Dubai with as it relates to either Cultivo or more broadly kind of climate solutions through finance and entrepreneurship? Yeah, so look, it, it was... Uh... It was a very intense COP for sure. I, I think the headlines have mentioned it a lot in terms of the amount of people that were attending throughout all the days at COP. And it was very telling, not because from a chaos perspective, but just because there were many voices. Uh, one of those voices that I think was properly amplified was that of indigenous groups as they were being part, uh, at least in my experience, in many of those fundamental conversations that were being had across that whole both blue and green zones. But 
I think that what to me resonated the most was the fact that nature was a bit like what I've experienced at the different climate weeks, certainly a New York climate week, and all the way from the Montreal COP uh, about a year ago, is that nature is in everyone's mind in the boardroom of corporates, as well as in the target of many investors. And I think uh, like never before, there were many financial institutions present at COP. And so from a Cultivo perspective, and from a, more importantly, from a nature perspective, it was really good to see how financial institutions are already thinking, actually quite in a very advanced fashion, how the capital stack that flows to nature is evolving from not purely equity type of vehicles, but fixed income type of vehicles, and how to make sure that that's landing with integrity and fairness, because those groups were present, those indigenous groups were present in many different countries. So that was a very rich set of conversations that involved, yes, technology, as well as different new innovative products from a finance perspective. But it was at the core of every conversation. I was, of course, I have a a bias on, of course, and perhaps a workshop blindness on this. But it's really good to see that if at all it's a, a resonance chamber, the resonance chamber is increasing size. That's excellent to hear. It reminds me of uh, in doing prep for our time together. On your all's uh, website at cultivo.land, you talk about the stats here, which I'm going to have you elaborate on if you would. More than half of the world's total gross domestic product, or $44 trillion, involves activities that are moderately or highly dependent on nature. And you, you continue, natural capital is an emerging asset class, dot, dot, dot. So maybe expound upon both the number, the magnitude, and then what it means for natural capital to be an asset class. Yeah, so look, that that number is, like many other stats around the value of nature, has been a driving force to continue to bring this up as a topic in the boardroom, let alone into financial institutions. So I'm connecting now that, that message on COP is the fact that those biodiversity gains, water gains, social gains, both direct and indirect social gains, as well as the ability of those ecosystems that are pulsing back to capture carbon, to move economies, is fundamental in the in basically in our daily lives. I think that we have failed overall in probably in the history of, of mankind to properly recognize the value of nature. And so what we're flagging with that number is that the value that is perceived both directly and indirectly as a cascade effect of what happens when you start regenerating nature is extremely uh, rich. So how do we unlock that? I think it's to the core of what we've been uh, solving over the, the life of Cultivo, which is to make sure that we're properly valuing nature with the use of science, artificial intelligence, and finance, and more importantly, with partnerships with those landowners from indigenous communities to wealthy landowners to make sure that they also benefit from the value of that natural capital stack. There was also perhaps just the final connection on the first two questions that the amount of capital that needs to flow to nature needs to increase massively. Some of the numbers that were shared during the COP were at least at least $4 trillion per year. And although there were there were many many commitments, I think where I would love to see us is how many of those commitments 
have actually started to land in nature next year. Because uh, sometimes there are just many pledges and not a lot of action. So that's, I think, more proof in those commitments is going to be fundamental to explore that natural capital stack and how much of those 44 trillion we're actually looking. Well, I'm glad you mentioned both the, the magnitude of commitments at, uh, at COP as well as, you know, a healthy skepticism, right? It's great to have pledges, but it's even better to have dollars invested into real projects uh, on the ground. And I mean, I think maybe to, to drill down one level deeper, I think, you know, all of us have seen economic projections with big numbers and so forth about benefits from nature, but then moving into finance, which I think is different than economics oftentimes, as in show me the real dollars that go to this specific project, this acreage, et cetera, with maybe hopefully contracts versus just maybe a more uncertain, say, spot market of sorts. What does it look like for the kinds of projects that you all would uh, facilitate funding into? What does it look like for those projects to have real, hopefully contracted revenue? Yeah. So, so for example, uh, let me start to now to your point like real examples of where capital is flowing. So for example, a grassland project in the north of Mexico or a grassland project in, in Africa, those projects receive capital both for as capital expenditure as well as operational expenditure to make sure that that grassland is regenerated. So how do we know how much does that project need? So through that Cultivo platform, we're able to assess both the biophysical gains, those biodiversity, water, carbon, and social gains, and then how much will that land restoration activity will actually cost? So the non-biophysical characteristics of that project. So when that comes and it's automated in terms of a financial model, that would mean, for example, that you need, let's say, just for, for rounding up numbers, about $10 million for a million hectares of grassland regeneration in Africa, specifically, let's say, in Namibia. That project will now need to have a series of land practices from the reintroduction of herbivores and other species that the ecosystem has lost to how to actually rotate uh, cattle and how we're engaging with communities, but more importantly, also to track that those land restoration activities are actually demonstrating and helping nature bounce back. So then this is where we use capital to also sense up the ecosystem. So from monitoring environmental DNA water, camera traps for biodiversity, that actually carbon is being captured, and also how the community is benefiting. So when we, let's say when in this space, in the natural capital space, you talk about baselines, we're actually creating a baseline across all of those variables to which capital is then unlocked. And then more importantly, now to your question on investment, when that capital starts to be spent in that land regeneration project, activities start to happen. And those activities then put and are audited with authentication of claims through the platform. So we, for example, we would have a data point on how much carbon is that specific uh, plot of land capturing. And that then gets verified, authenticated, audited by third parties. That then is part of the release, for example, on an advanced market commitment or a forward contract to another third party that will retire that carbon ton. And that the sale of those carbon credits would be going back to the special purpose vehicle where the investors put the capital in, and then that provides the return. In that component, 
before their return, the landowner is receiving part of the benefits and their uh, revenue streams that are coming from those land regeneration activities. So both the community, the ecosystem of partners that are actually doing the implementation of the project, as well as the investor is seeing uh, a return on their investment, both in time as well as in capital. And it aligns all of the parties to make sure that that land regeneration activity then happens for a very long period of time. And it's important that uh, the final point that I would add is that these projects are very complex. So third technology will remove that complexity and we continue to do so, but also we continue to do it in a way that we can ensure that that land regeneration project will happen for at least 40 years, if not a hundred years. So it, that could that continues to be reinforced by bringing those returns to all the stakeholders. Yeah, that's helpful. And maybe elaborate, how often do the projects, again, that you're helping to receive funding, how often do they have just one form of revenue being uh, carbon credits, et cetera, or are there other forms of revenue that uh, correspond to you know, kind of an improved ecosystem, if you will? Well, all of the projects have especially at the land level, have multiple diversified revenue streams. So for example, in many of the grassland projects, there will be a component of ecotourism. There will be a component of the land activity itself. For example, in North Mexico grasslands or those in the US, well as in the Southern Cone, you would have cattle. So there is a uh, cattle revenue going to the landowner. Uh, cattle-related revenue going to the landowner. Sometimes it's for wool, if, if the pastoralist practices are happening, for example, with sheep. And then carbon is really, and I love that question, because carbon is really a catalytic component to the full land regeneration, right? Carbon is not going to be the only ever driving source of revenue for those projects, because back to making sure that it's permanent and durable, carbon is really a push to make sure that all of those very good practices, sometimes difficult to implement, are having a right driving or motivating force. So all projects that we are involved in have that first, a very important distinction that they're going from a degraded state to a performing state, and that we're making sure that the communities also have a very robust set of income streams that allow them to be there. Sometimes, as um, has now started to happen, and of course we have the, the data to make sure we can authenticate these claims, as we're starting to see those communities get more and more resilience from a social perspective, social teaching perspective. For example, in, in the Central Valley of Mexico, there is now reverse immigration going. What does that mean? Most of these communities are were purely driven by women because most men have moved to the U.S. and North America. And they're coming back. Some of those men are coming back because the economic driver of that, in that case, it's a regenerated forest, is better from a quality perspective than that what they were having as immigrants in the U.S. So every type of data point that we get from a social perspective is being driven by a diversified set of incomes, income streams for those communities. Well, I'm thrilled that was your answer, Manuel. That this was not a test, <laughs> but but I'm glad you passed. Yeah, I, I get a little nervous when I, I see projects whose sole revenue source is carbon. Now, sometimes that is that is the nature of the beast. Think uh, you know carbon removal, let's say, 
but it, but in this case, that's not the case. So the, the ability to have multiple revenue streams and have more parties to win uh, creates uh, you know stickiness. Uh, well, look, more more champions, right, for these projects. Uh, Great. To, to stay as they are, or well, well I stay on the trajectory they're on to regeneration. Yeah, and, and I think one of those big driving forces of it is that, on that stickiness is that it also provides different hedging strategies for the landowner, right? Because at the end of the day, those attributes that come from the natural capital, so for example, biodiversity increase, even carbon gains, they can be also, with some of our customers, looked at it from uh, the attributes that the produce would have so that they can be compliant for nearshoring, uh, more competitive for nearshoring, for example, from Latin America towards uh, the U.S., but also fundamental to now many different types of mechanisms like the EU deforestation-free policies coming into uh, full full swing at the start of next year. So it just gives also a competitive advantage to those communities into what they're doing. So that stack is what we believe that drives uh, me continue to steal that stickiness. Well, I wonder whether we got into the weeds too quickly for, for listeners. Maybe let's back up to uh, to whatever, however high your the, the satellites fly that are <laughs> that are providing your all's data, but but you describe yourselves in in one of your videos as a search engine for natural capital. So maybe just at the highest level, what is Cultivo? And then we'll go back into the weeds of these these wonderful upgraded landscapes. Yeah, perfect. So well, we're a public benefit corporation that values nature. We have use of science, artificial intelligence, finance, and partnerships. At the end of the day, we're that search engine, what it does for our customers who are financial institutions and corporations is we're building that pipeline of assets that they can invest in. And they will be investing in those based on different criteria. So we've done a lot of uh, automation and the development of the platform is to make sure that we continue to match that investment criteria that are customers are looking for with those degraded landscapes. An example of criteria could be based on a, a regional level. Perhaps they just want to invest in OECD countries, or perhaps they just want to invest in the global south. Or they might we have a specific sweet tooth for grasslands or forests. So that's really what our that's our attention for nature continues to deliver. And it's delivering it at uh, just to give a bit more color is Delivering it in a full suite of variables that allow the investors to have a very good visibility on that risk-adjusted return that they're that they're trying to match against their capital stack. And how often is the land publicly owned? Think I don't know a land trust or nonprofit versus privately owned, either individuals or corporate. Well, actually, we're quite diversified on that approach. When we started this more than, so I did in the back of a napkin five years ago, but officially four years ago, we started with private landowners in North America. North America for me includes Mexico. So we started there and then we started to work also with a lot of indigenous communities, specifically first in Mexico and now across more than 20 countries. Now, those indigenous communities might have the land deed or the land use for Italian rights. In many cases, they're just inhabitants, stewards of federal land. So now we're 
widespread and it's very healthy for Cultivo to have that type of mix of land uh, where we have from you know wealthy landowners to indigenous groups that I would also consider very wealthy, but just a very different uh, set of impact that it also, I, I just wanted to go back to the previous one on how our investors are also looking at that type of distributed strategy. Everyone is looking for that impact, but the materiality of do they want it more towards the ecosystem or mix with the community or biodiversity changes from customer to customer. Well, and you, you make that point on your website as well, right? That uh, like like any portfolio, you want uh, different, maybe landowners, you want different uh, those sizes, different habitats, different revenue streams in a portfolio of natural capital assets in the same way that you might have a diversified, you know, financial portfolio, right? And that's a very important point in making sure that natural capital with all of its data starts to continue to be seen to investors as a as an investment they are already comfortable. So for example, some of our customers really see investing in nature as a infrastructure type of investment. So just making sure that the way we're setting up this portfolios resonates with them uh, through that data is is fundamental. So how about a, a detailed question here that I think many listeners are thinking about, which is what are the average, well, the range, let's say, or the average, I don't know, pick a financial metric, internal rate of return, you know, multiple uninvested capital, you name it. How do you describe the financial return expectations for projects recognizing they must vary dramatically from, you know, type of habitat to geography, et cetera? Yeah, so I, I would answer it through a range. I would say still on the early days, but for us to have a perfect, properly weighted average. So from a range perspective, we're looking for IRRs between 7% all the way to 22, 23%. The distinction there is that the, especially the spread on return can be from how degraded the ecosystem is and how cost-effective the land regeneration activity be. So. Certainly, there is a component of economies of scale and the size of each one of those projects to make sure that that return is achievable. But we continue to see that spread getting more and more data points. In other words, uh, perhaps for more finance only listeners, we're continue to build the book and increasing its depth. Yeah, makes sense. How about um, how are we going to go with this? Yeah, you mentioned capital stack on your website a few times as well. Talk about how often these projects are funded just with equity, with some combination of equity and debt, or door number three, with uh, market rate, equity and debt, plus you know some sort of, I don't know, foundation or government, more of like a blend of finance uh, a capital stack. Well, we started all of our projects purely with equity where we've seen a huge evolution in the market, which I think is a really good indicator, is that a fixed income type of approach is, for example, sustainability impact bonds uh, with great ratings are coming. One of the announcements that we did at COP was a, a sustainability impact bond specifically to invest in projects upstream, uh, nature-based projects within the Cultivo platform. And so 
more and more we continue to see fixed income. We're seeing and having conversations with very large financial institutions on this realm. And then in terms of the third bucket on the blended finance, the way we've been starting to do early innings of this, Chris, is using that, um, uh, for example, philanthropic capital at the beginning of a project to make sure that it's very catalytic. In other words, we've realized that the longer we move a site to creating all the package that is needed to give comfort to an institutional investor with that catalytic uh, capital allows us to have a much fairer conversation and be able to share the benefits with communities. And basically putting already the guardrails by the time that the investor and or the update comes. A lot of where there are scars in this market that we continue to work through. And I think, or another way to say it, there are a lot of antibodies sometimes is where either off-takers, corporations uh, have abused their relationships with the with, uh, communities because they come in quite early and for a small amount of capital compared to the capital needs of the project, they sort of put a role for or even an exclusivity clause that they will own the project going forward. And so that's what we're starting to, to use catalytic capital to make sure that all of those high quality projects don't get prohibitive or blocking clauses down the line and give them a lot more room to grow. That's super interesting, right? So I think for listeners, the ROFR, the right of first refusal, right? But control over the fate of the project in so many ways. That's a, it's a good reminder for listeners, I think, those with you know philanthropic, you know, family office capital looking to to make more of an impact beyond just the returns, to think about the win they get involved in projects, not just whether it's blended finance, that the permanent capital stack includes, uh, you know, a portion of uh, whatever first loss, stop loss, you know, uh, non-market capital. Let me ask you this, going back to the carbon as a source of revenue, can you talk about the percentage of total revenue, let's say maybe a range that comes from carbon? So yet of all the sources of revenue from these projects, would carbon tend to be, I don't know, 5% or 25% or 50%? Obviously, again, um, the answer is it depends, but maybe give us some some guardrails there. Yeah. So so look, for example, uh, many of our customers from an SPV perspective, a special purpose vehicle that is set on, let's say, a grassland project in, in Africa or in Latin America, that special purpose vehicle will receive that capital from our customers then there would be a forward contract with an off-taker, likely a corporation. And all of the returns of that special purpose vehicle come from, uh, in many of the cases, on purely on carbon credits. Now, those carbon credits, 100% of the returns, are connected to attributes on biodiversity, water, and social attributes that get as a delivery mechanism through carbon removal credits. But... At the landowner level, the landowner um, carbon removal stream would be about 20, sometimes 10% of their total revenue streams because they see the full uh, natural capital series of benefits across their diversified income. What we're starting to explore is other projects where the land regeneration activities is also bringing in other ways of uh, revenue from 
for example, in one of the projects, the carbon revenue piece was able to then bring additional climate mitigation techniques such as fire trails that allowed us to have high-end mountain mountain biking, so in the same trails. And so that project would now have a new revenue stream for that type of income where we're sharing a lot of that with the communities, but it, it will also get a kicker uh, out of that new ecotourism activity. So we started simple, making sure that all of the attributes were connected to our carbon removal product. We're starting to see how that evolves into other mechanisms of nature-based investment. And just going back to your first question, there's a lot of conversations and now real capital starting to be put back into an evolving mechanism of debt for nature. So that normally would be connected to federal lands across the globe. But I, I would just flag to your listeners that that's a big development uh, that will just continue to increase over the next couple of years. Yep. How about, uh, is, is insetting relevant to what you do? where some of the land owned it could be you know, part of the supply chain for large corporates, so they're kind of taking care of their liability within their supply chain. Is that relevant to Cultivo or not so much? Yeah, yeah very much so. Uh, many of our corporate customers are looking into the regeneration of some of their assets or their supply chain assets from the land. This is what I, what I love about where we, the industry where we're in, that the land regeneration, it's almost like nature doesn't care what those revenue streams are, right? The land regeneration activity will be the same, but those corporate customers are looking into how all of those attributes, rather than embedding them in a carbon credit, they're embedded in the pros that they're supplying. So to your point of insetting. So we're seeing even quite a lot of evolution. For example, when we were speaking with a beverage company that Material from a materiality perspective, water would matter a lot more. So they would, for example, their portfolios would be more connected to land regeneration that has an increase in soil moisture potential and the replenishment of an aquifer. Whereas some other corporations might have, for example, timber, and they're looking into from a materiality perspective, a higher biodiversity gain with really good social outcomes. So from a authentication of claims on the natural capital stack, either embedding them on a carbon credit or an insetting strategy continues to evolve for corporates. That's, that's pretty, it's pretty interesting. So many ways to, to get at this, at this new asset class. Let, let's go back though. I think you mentioned this, this started with the proverbial idea on a napkin, what, maybe five years ago. I'm guessing that there were some uh, some theories that you had that, uh, when tested, didn't didn't work out, and so you had to you had to pivot many pivots. I mean, like M I N I, not not many, as in a lot of pivots. But what what were some examples, Manuel? Of we thought that we would go this direction for these reasons, and it turns out the data or the science said something else, and here was the impact of that of that realization. Yeah, so th those very clear focus areas where the, the company very quickly went to, and I would say this was on the first even six months of the company where we were releasing the first algorithms, that we continued to see that the spread, basically how big the spread of natural capital would be, was way more clear, additional, and there was a lot more potential when looking at degraded assets. 
So be, at the beginning, we were thinking about just nature as a whole, but then we started to quickly see from our own data that we should be focusing a lot into the career assets. That has now it completely been embedded into the culture and the mission of the of the company, but that was a real realization driven by data as to how important it is for us and our purpose of regenerating 150 million hectares by 2030 to just focus on those very degraded assets. So again, I'm I'm trying to 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 take good notes for the <laughs> for the podcast summary. And then what's the next question? The, the next question is that I can imagine many listeners, when they hear what you do, they're picturing sites of optimized, just gorgeous, pristine, primary forest and so forth, untouched, you know, mangrove uh, areas and such. But it's not where your all's solution works, right? It's to say, no, 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 go to the place where the impact is the not the worst, but maybe the worst. Uh, it's almost like in... In real estate, it's like no, no. Let's let's buy a class C, you know, office building. It's pretty sore, needs a lot of a lot of love, and let's invest to upgrade it. And what do you know? Now it's a class A office space. And guess what? We created tons of value in the process. But looking at your website, I did not realize that would be the focus of what you do. But hearing you explain it, it makes a ton of sense because you, again, as you have said, have told us so far, you establish a baseline. With these practices, there is a, a new norm and there is a delta in between. And then that delta is the value created all these new, re- new revenue streams, you know? Exactly. And and so there's, uh, actually, you put it quite from a picture perspective, it's quite sobering. And, and I've realized from a mental health perspective, I know that uh, in many of your podcasts, this is referenced by some of your, the people that you've invited that. I didn't realize how visiting so many of these degraded assets, degraded ecosystems would have. And the reality is that we're stepping in in ecosystems that have been properly degraded. Many of them are desertifying. And now, from a very positive perspective, not only for our investors and our customers, is that when you start to see that change, it's very palpable. Or from a nature capital or nature market's perspective, it's what everyone refers to highly additional. This is where the high quality really sits in, where you can clearly see with data points, let's say, for example, camera traps. This is where the whole team at Cultivo gets a kick out of this. When we start to see PCs coming back, when you start to see how it actually changes our community's uh, economic forecast for the future, and it really makes it very tangible in terms of the impact that and how important that decision was many years ago to focus on degraded ecosystems. I can picture, well, I don't know, five years, 10 years from now, the the case studies you describe on your website are going to have so many uh, wonderful before and after photos, right? The contrast will be so stark. I, um, I look forward to that. I'm also thinking, I'm thinking out loud here, two of the companies where, uh, I'm on the board. There, there. Maybe there's collaboration. Even what you know, one is is TerraSense. So this is donor capital to to pre-purchase carbon dioxide removal, usually from engineered solutions, but not necessarily. And the other, a for-profit company called WorldTree. So re- regenerative agriculture focused 
with one of the world's fastest growing trees, likely lots of activity. I mean, historically, lots of activity in Latin America. And this idea of of a working you know, uh, farm, basically, that incorporates biodiversity principles to pull biodiversity into the farm, such that, as you're describing, on these nature uh, cameras, you, you capture species on film that, that weren't there uh, before. Well, but Chris, I would, as part of the question to who we are, I mentioned there are partnerships and we, everything that we do and the way we scale and the only way, in fact, I would put it, that we're going to achieve our purpose is through partnerships. So I would truly welcome those, those introductions because that's a way, for example, how we are able to be in 20 countries as well as through those partnerships that have already built the trust with those landowners. And that really allows us to move more capital to the space mm. because we're, we're no expectation that we're going to be able to build a trust, for example, that one of those companies already has with those communities where they're being working. But we believe that we can short shortcut that trust with those partners and then we by proxy get trust with that community. Right on. But first, there's a brief message from our sponsors. Just kidding. We still don't take any sponsors. <laughs> but did you know that 100,000 plus CEOs belong to CEO peer groups? And if that makes you feel a little FOMO, and if you're a CEO or founder, then you're in luck. I have the privilege of leading North America's top peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors in climate tech, clean energy, and sustainability. Today's members are creating billions of dollars of market value and millions of tons of greenhouse gas reductions. With our monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one -on -one executive coaching calls, our members help each other, most importantly, help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. If this sounds interesting, please go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. Okay, let's let's switch as we do from uh, talking about Cultivo to talking about Manuel. So, Manuel, tell us a, a belief, um, something you strongly believe in. Ideally, it's it's not necessarily work related, but it influences maybe the why or the how you're building Cultivo. Well, I believe that restoring nature is fundamental to our existence. Wholeheartedly, it's uh, the reason why my son was born at the same time as Cultivo, because I realized that if I wanted to have a child, it, it had to be in tandem with uh, giving higher prospects of nature being there. And so every minute of, of my life, it's spent with family, friends, and trying to regenerate nature. So I really believe it. I Leaves through it that uh, work, uh, leaves through it that home. So mm -hmm. it's all encompassing. And I yeah. really believe that nature should be like that. Mm -hmm. How about uh, if you're giving advice to you know an emerging professional, college graduate, or maybe even the younger Manuel, what, uh, what are two or three tips she might give to be more effective, happier, more impactful on this career building journey? Well, 
Um, the first one is that just make sure that you're surrounded by people that you like. I, I think I, for sure, in my first uh, professional years, I was not putting enough filters on that. And you burn, you, you just burn a lot of energy uh, on, on dealing with, with relationships that you don't like. So as much as possible, try to just make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people that you like, that you like working uh, with, and that think different to you, but that their driving force or their driving goal is the same. And it really makes life a lot easier. I'm very thankful that in Kulti, I've been able to do that. Not all the time in my previous experiences. And I just lost a lot of time trying to manage politics and relationships. Mm. Yeah, well, that's that's certainly one of the perks of building a company is you, you ideally get to create your own, or so they say, create your own version of paradise, at least as it relates to what you do for, you know, for a living. It's hard. It's harder, harder once you get, you know, dozens of employees and have to grow as quickly as, as you all are growing. Tell us, uh, tell us some habits or routines, Manuel, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, you name it, that keep you healthy, sane, and focused uh, as you build Ultibo. Well, so shout out to you. I think developed, uh, also with this component of uh, a good balance between the driving forces of why Cultivo started. So for sure, one one that works for me is to continue to spend quality time with family and friends. Uh, I unfortunately have to be reminded by my family that I have to do that more, but I think I'm improving. Uh, the, the other very good one is that I used to, and it's connected to the previous one as well, is that I wish I knew that just running the stereotypical Silicon Valley mode of no sleeping, just you know, beer and pizzas and stuff like that, is not sustainable. It really, it really drains all creativity, uh, at least to me. So, just spending a lot of time making sure that I'm resting is very important to me. And so, as my brain continues to drive forward at night, I realize that starting an amazing novel. Uh, pride to sleeping really disconnects me. Uh, and I cannot be reading some of the books that I really like on, on especially the topic where, where Kulti was invested. I need to really switch off and go to a proper level. And the other one is that I have, since, since I was born, a lot of back problems. And so to me, a practice of yoga with a weekly practice of yoga, at least twice a week with arms, uh, sorry, strength training. Uh, is fundamental to keep my back. So right now, as we're speaking and standing, and I'm just built resilience to make sure that I'm standing and, and being active all the time. And the final one that I would share that I've been trialing over the last three years, which is great, and my body now really tells me when I'm not doing it, it's at least 15 minutes in a nature-based setting. So that it can be as simple as a park, but I need to, I really feel it when, when I've been uh, in front of the, the screen for more than eight hours, it, it, I can really tell, and for sure, my body will tell me that something's going already. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on the last point. In fact, uh, two two of my my calls with these uh, you know three dozen CEOs I work with, they were walking talks. So you know, I'm, I'm walking uh, in the woods here for an hour and a half, two hours. Uh, getting into the weeds, you know, with with these wonderful humans building these companies and all the normal challenges that that folks like you 
uh, go through on the uh, on the novel that you the novels you're reading before bed to kind of you know unplug. So after after I watched uh, a sitcom or something, you know, with with the, my two younger kids at night, then I have time. And so what do I do? I, lately, I'm watching uh, these YouTube documentary documentaries of sorts, I suppose, in Japan where I lived for a few years, of like um, you know families living in rural areas, rebuilding thatched roofs, et cetera, to their to their uh, very old you know hundred two hundred year old homes. And my wife looks up and she says. What what are you watching? I was like, what do you mean? This is amazing. Why aren't you watching it with me? Anyway, totally get that. You do share what those channels. Yeah, there you go. That's right. I'll, I'll share offline with you, uh, Manuel. Um the health and wellness. So how do you how do you make sure to fit in yoga into the schedule? Is it like a first thing in the morning? Is it at night when things wind down? How does it how does it fit into your busy schedule? Well, I would love that it was first thing in the morning, but there was one thing that I never realized until I was here, here being uh, in Berkeley, California, that I was going to have to wake up quite early because everyone is already, or most people in my sphere are already awake. And I so I just realized that I had to create this sort of muscle reflex of awake and your front of colds. And so now we're, the way we're, trying to, and I say we because I, I do my yoga practice with, with my wife, is to have it at night. And every time that there is a window where I can do it halfway during the day, the better because already by night, energy will be depleted. So I realized that I need to mix it with just blocking. And this is a thing within Cultivo that we really take a lot of time to encourage uh, our team members to take breaks proper breaks in, during the day to just make sure that creativity carries on throughout the whole day. So as much as I can, I would try to do a, a yoga session or, or strength training somewhere around 1 p.m. And if not, uh, selection or rat night. Well, it's great that you're modeling that practice for your team such that they they feel like they're, it is just words, right? They, they really are allowed to and encouraged to take that time for their health and wellness. I mean, in general, but also to be, you know, more productive at work as well. Yeah, correct. That thing would see my my thing in their block with doing yoga. It's it's, it's also important. <laughs> nice. Or running or cycling or whatever. Yeah. How about one last one here? Tell us some uh, some books or podcasts, I don't know, tools, quotes, uh, a couple of things listeners could pick up. Yeah, so so I've out of many, many frameworks of how to continue to kick the tires of an idea, or even when it's way more than an idea, when it's already a company, just to make sure that you're still on track. I love a book uh, called Discipline Entrepreneurship by Bill Ollett, a uh, professor at MIT. And it's not that that I'm a, some sort of religious fanatic on discipline entrepreneurship. I think it's just another tool set that helps me stay true and just to continue to check, always be checking assumptions. So it's just very mechanic uh, on that discipline on how to to go through the steps and make sure that you're not making omissions. Because when you're in the middle of, of the creation of a company or already growing that company, it's really easy to just go with the inertia and not stop to question if you're going in the, in the right direction. So that one is one that I really recommend. The other one that 
that uh, continues to help me is especially on the way the company was created. Um, there are, um, it's called slicing the pie, uh, slicing pie. And it was just a really good way of structuring the way I engage with my co-founder, but also with all the different individuals that were early in the creation of the business. So not that relevant now. I just see that as a very good foundation for where we are right now. But I would just encourage your listeners, especially if they're at the beginning of an idea that's becoming a proto company, just to make sure back to that point of you're engaging with the right type of human, that you're also setting the right foundations as to how how a company's ownership is being split, that it's fair and it's inclusive. Mm, mm. Manuel, any uh, any final uh, words, uh, call to action, the kind of folks you want to hear from, what's missing in the climate, uh, kind of natural capital dialogue, the last, uh, the last word yours here. Well, both to encourage more and more investors to look at this space because... It has many, many, many different attributes to it that I think will be really interesting for their own portfolios. And the other one is just to encourage, as you already prompted, Chris, if any of your listeners want to partner with Cultivo, we're like really open to do that and to continue to scale together. Great. Well, um, you know, as a person who uh, started, kind of started their career in the rainforest of Central America, without a way to understand how to preserve those habitats. It's cool to see what you guys are doing. Rooting for your own success, Manuel. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. Or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.